That's page 1179 for Philippians, chapter 1, starting at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Here's a question to kick us off. How can I make better decisions? How can I make better decisions? It's one of the questions at the heart of this little book of Philippians. Indeed, it might be the question that you were left with at the end of last week's talk. Last week, we began a series working our way through this book of Philippians over 13 weeks. We're going slowly so that we can savor it. And we saw that Paul's big prayer for the church in Philippi is that they would think better As it says in verse 9, written on the handout there, Paul was praying that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they might approve what is excellent. He wanted them to be so changed that they would approve what is excellent, that they would make better decisions, as we suggested last week, so that they would have the ability to choose between, well, as an illustration, uh, Lidl's Simply Range Chocolate and Hotel Chocolat. They obviously didn't have that at the time. Paul didn't care about chocolates. But he wanted them to make the real-life equivalent of that sort of decision. And not just choosing good chocolate, choosing what is really excellent. And so, ultimately, being pure and blameless when Jesus returns to the glory and praise of God. In fact, Nick, one of the men's workers here, suggested to me that actually it's about having no regrets. A prayer that we would be able to make such excellent decisions that when we get to the end of our lives would be able to look back and go, yeah, I've made the right choices. A kind of no regrets prayer. 
Wouldn't we love to make decisions like that? And yet we didn't quite say what it would look like. If it were simply about choosing between two kinds of chocolate, then it'd be quite an easy decision. As some of you on the front row are looking eagerly. Tiff said to me, oh, I'll sit on the front row, it's chocolate. It's my turn this week. <laughs> and when I'm making this decision, you don't need any help to know my thought process. I could eat the little Simply Range chocolate for 35p, 36p, I think, or the £4.50 bar. In fact, if I use this enough in illustrations, I might be able to convince William to claim it on expenses. So this is an excellent decision. Mmm. Oh, it's really good chocolate. Absolutely no regrets, except that it's taking a bit longer to eat than I thought it would. But what about the really excellent things? What about the normal decisions of life? What about when it's a choice between different things I might do for a job? What about when it's the direction I set for the rest of my life? What about when my life is on the line, as it genuinely is, for many Christians in the world today? Well, Paul was really well-placed to answer that question. In fact, this evening, he invites us into his thought process as he models this kind of excellent decision-making. And so we're going to work through this passage three times to pick up three lessons. And the first is at the top of the handout. Approving what is excellent is weird. Approving what is excellent is weird. I was going to say it's surprising. It is surprising. But I don't think that goes far enough. I mean, if you knew nothing about Christianity and you just looked in on Paul's life, you would have to say he was weird. Look at the way that he thinks about his imprisonment. Paul had had an amazing ministry. He'd been touring the Mediterranean in order to speak of the Lord Jesus. He had been used powerfully to speak of Christ. But he's ended up in Rome, in prison, on trumped-up charges. He's even on death row. And any normal person would at least be a bit upset about it, wouldn't they? Indeed, the Philippians, this church of key supporters, they had sympathy for him. They'd sent one of their own, a guy called Epaphroditus, to take a support package to him. But Paul, rather than sending back the thank you letter that I think I'd have written, a kind of, oh, it is really hard here, but that support package really made the difference. Well, he sends Epaphroditus back with this letter, and it completely rewrites the narrative. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I know you guys are upset, he says, but, but listen, this is actually really good news because, verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, Paul has never been shy to talk to people about Jesus. Read about his time in Philippi when he ended up in prison again and he used it to speak the gospel to his jailer. It seems like he's done the same thing, and they're so struck by this good news, they're spreading it around to everyone else, so that the whole imperial guard, which I'm told could have been as many as 9,000 people, had somehow heard of his imprisonment for Christ. And it's not just inside the prison, verse 14. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Uh, Maybe it's Paul's steadfastness under trial, And maybe it's this discovery that God has been using this imprisonment for the growth of the gospel. But whatever it is, it's given the other Christians in Rome boldness to go out and speak of Jesus as well. Yes, Paul is in prison, prison, but that is great news because it means that loads more people are hearing about Christ. It's a strange way to think. Can you imagine saying the same if you were stuck in prison on trumped-up charges 
even on death row. In fact, it's actually worse than that because some Christians were using his imprisonment as an opportunity to get at him. Now look at verse 15. Some indeed preached Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So he says, sure, you've got these Christians who are emboldened. Uh, They speak the gospel with good motives. And yet you've got others who just want to afflict him. And I'm not sure how that would work. How do you preach the gospel in a way that gets at someone else? Uh, Maybe they were just going, ah, we can do it without getting put in prison. Uh, Maybe there was a particular kind of Jewish flavor to their preaching that they thought would wind him up. Well, it doesn't work, does it? It was designed to get at Paul, but he's, he's very positive. He's not saying that their attitude is okay. If you flick over the page and look at 2 verse 3, at 2 verse 3, he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Indeed, lots of other places in the Bible, you can see that the attitude of envy and rivalry is wrong. He's not saying it's okay, nor is he saying that it doesn't matter what you preach so long as you talk about Jesus. If this was... I don't know, a group of Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or anybody speaking a gospel other than the gospel that Paul proclaimed, well, he would use the kind of fiery language he uses in other parts of the New Testament. But he's saying that when it comes to his own interests, how is he going to respond in terms of his own potential to get discouraged because people are kicking him while he's down? Well, approving what is excellent looks like this. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. It's weird, isn't it? And if you don't already think that it's weird, well, it really starts getting weird when he talks about his death, his impending death. Let's pick it up at the end of verse 18, underneath the subtitle there. Yes, he says, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, which sounds like things are picking up. Sounds like things are going to go well now, doesn't it? He's going to be delivered. But look at what deliverance means. Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says he's confident that he's going to be delivered, but it's not a confidence that the trial will definitely go in his favor. It is a confidence that Christ will be honored in his body, whether he lives or he dies. So he might be delivered by being released from prison. That's deliverance, and Christ is honored. He might be delivered by being released from his body, by dying. And that's deliverance. Either way, it's deliverance in which Christ is honored in his body, and so he rejoices, whichever way it goes. And at this point, he draws us further into his thought process, and it's even more surprising. You see, he knows what he wants. He actually wants to die. Verse 23, halfway through the verse, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. If he got what he wanted, his trial would, I don't know, he'd find him guilty, and he'd be sentenced to death, and he'd go to glory with Christ, which is weird enough as it is, and yet he doesn't even choose that. 
He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I was chatting to a student about this on Friday, and he pointed out that it is not weird for Paul to choose life, but it is weird to choose it for this reason. Paul wants to go to be with Jesus. That is far better. But when he doesn't choose that, it's not because of any, interest of self, any hint of self-interest. It's because of his concern for the Philippians. And do you see how weird Paul's choices are? As we go through, he, he keeps picking the thing that I know I wouldn't have picked. And I wonder, is that what you are expecting for a life of excellent decisions? Have you reconciled to your, yourself to the fact that if you follow Jesus, if you want an excellent life, it will look weird? Some of you are thinking, well, it's okay for you, Tim. Weirdness just comes naturally to you. I'm glad you laughed then. <laughs> but remember, this is not just about one or two Christians. Uh, Paul is not just sharing a bit of biography here. He is expanding on his prayer for the whole church. What God wants for you and me, that we would uh, have love that abounds more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we might approve what is excellent. And it's true that in lots of ways, Christians will be normal. Uh, being a Christian is not about being weird for the sake of being weird. And I think it's a discredit to the gospel if that's what we're pursuing. But have you registered that it is impossible to live as a Christian without making weird decisions? That what you do with your money, what you choose even for your job, your ambitions, they won't make sense to the world. Approving what is excellent will necessarily appear weird to the world when it involves making decisions that only make sense when focusing on Jesus. That's our second point on the handout. Approving what is excellent is focused on Jesus. In fact, you might write, approving what is excellent is weird unless you are focused on Jesus. Approving what is excellent, focused on Christ. Now, he is Paul's focus all the way through the passage, isn't he? His focus when it comes to his imprisonment, back in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Indeed, Jesus is the focus when Paul talks about those who are trying to get at him. Verse 18 again. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. He is the reason that Paul could look forward, even eagerly, to whatever is coming in the future, life or death. End of verse 20. End of verse 20, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. And the idea is summarised in what is possibly the most important verse in the whole book. Do turn this up if you haven't been following the others. Chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, this is Paul's motto. It is the life-transforming motto after which this talk has been titled. Chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
Sarah, one of the student workers here, often asks students how they would complete that sentence. For to me, to live is... What would you have put in that blank? For to me, to live is all about me? And to die is a disaster? Maybe something like that? On a good day, maybe in our better moments, we might say to live involves Christ. Uh, Lots of my life is taken up with Christ. Maybe even to live is Christian. That is, there's a Christian flavor to everything I do. But Paul goes even further. He says to live is Christ. My life is all about the person of Jesus. Jesus is everything. He is the motivation for what I do, the pattern for what I do. He is the person whose glory I seek to honor. To live is Christ. And it means for Paul that even death is no threat. Indeed, there's a part of him that would prefer it, as we've seen. Verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Paul treasures Christ so much, he can't think of anything better than going to be with him. And sometimes I think we get close to that. My desire is to depart and be in the new creation, and be spared from this fallen world, so that I can go and enjoy paradise. That line to the thief on the cross that Luke reminded us of, today you will be with me in paradise. And we think, paradise, that sounds pretty good. But for Paul, those are fringe benefits. For him, the prize is Jesus. Today you will be with me in paradise, says Jesus. And Paul says, that's what excites me. Jesus, God the Son, who became human and died in our place so that we could have a relationship with him. He is the one whom Paul lives for. Can you imagine Paul singing that song that we sang just before the talk? What gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, my freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To live is Christ and to die is gain. A few years ago, Jordan Peterson published this book, 12 Rules for Life. It was instantly a bestseller bestseller, because it was born out of some other things that he'd been posting online. He'd already got a bit of a following and people started buying it. In fact, it was so popular, he published another book, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. So it turns out there are 24 rules for life. (laughs) Actually, it turns out the original list was 42. So he's got another book somewhere. Uh, When it gets published, you heard it here first. But for Paul, there's only one rule for life. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. It is the principle that explains every decision that he makes. A life-transforming motto. And it is worth saying, when he says to die is gain, he is not encouraging suicide. In fact, when he says, which I shall choose, he actually doesn't get a choice. He's simply inviting us into his thought process. Uh, By the time we get to chapter 2, it will be clear that he is subject to forces that he can't control. He's just sort of giving us a picture of the things that he would prefer. And I say that partly because it would be possible to completely misunderstand this. He is not calling us to to go out and strap bombs to our chests. That is clearly wrong. I also say it because I'm aware that there are a number of us who are struggling with mental ill health at the moment. And I wouldn't want you to hear these verses wrongly. 
If you're struggling with depression, if the idea of ending your life has even entered your mind, please would you get help? I talk to a friend or your small group leader. Uh, please see your GP. Uh, come and grab me or Luke if you want more pointers on that. This is not a picture of a man struggling with depression. This is a picture of a man approving what is excellent. Someone who is wholly focused on Jesus. And that focus on Jesus makes sense of all his weird decisions. That decision to rejoice in his imprisonment. The decision to trust God over his death. The decision to work, in fact, for his release, even though he'd like to depart and be with Christ, so that he can keep serving other Christians. I'm sure we could multiply examples in this room. The decision to align yourself with Jesus when it means drawing opposition from those around you. I know some here have turned down jobs that would have been more impressive, would have paid you more, but would have given you less opportunity to serve Jesus. Others who have given sacrificially uh, and in such a way that no one else has a clue. Those whose standard of living is not determined by your income, but by verse 21. Those whose lives look completely different from their peers because to live is Christ. They are weird decisions. Decisions that only make sense if your focus is on Jesus. But if your focus is on Jesus... They are the only decisions that make sense. C.T. Studd, some of us have heard of, was a world-class cricketer. But I suspect that we haven't heard of him because of his cricket. He's someone who gave it up in order to share the good news of Jesus overseas. In fact, he was from a very rich family and was due to receive the equivalent of millions of pounds in inheritance, but gave it all away for the sake of the gospel. He put it like this, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. They're decisions that only make sense if you're focused on Jesus. But if you're focused on Jesus, they are the only decisions that make sense. I realize some of us here aren't Christians. And maybe you look at your Christian friend and you think, well, at least half of this seems true. They are making weird decisions. In fact, maybe you're like, yeah, they, they do make weird decisions and they do it for Jesus. It must be done through gritted teeth. And maybe you read verse 18 and you assume that it goes like this. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice, I guess I have to. Well, that's not Paul's way, is it? Thirdly, approving what is excellent is the path of joy. It is the path of joy. And did you notice how happy Paul is when he's writing this? Right from the very start, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has, served has, really, what has happened has really served to advance the gospel. And I'm convinced he can't have said that without a smile on his face. Or verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. I kind of pictured Timothy, his, his co-author, in uh, writing this. Maybe he was his scribe, and he sat there kind of writing away while Paul's dictating, and Paul says, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And, and Timothy's like, rejoice, Paul? Like, seriously, is that right? And he's like, yes, yes, Timothy, yes, and I will rejoice. And he's like, okay, yes, and I will rejoice. Even as he talks about death row, he uses incredibly positive language. Just look over the page, top of, top of page 1180, verse 20. Paul says, it is my eager expectation and hope 
that I will not be at all ashamed. He's talking about the possibility of death, and yet he looks forward to it eagerly. Can you read it without a grin on your face? But of course he is joyful. He is in a win-win situation. Verse 21 says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's win-win. If I am to live, he says, in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. But if he dies, verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. It's the definition of win-win. And most investment adverts have that warning about the risks, don't they say? Uh, they say in big letters, um, you're in, well, they say in big letters, get rich quick or something like that. And then underneath it says, your capital might be at risk. Uh, a few years ago, Leo actually sent me an email and the advert had in small letters, 69% of investors lose money on this. I've no idea who follows that link. But there is no risk here. Your investment is not at risk. It's as though it says, we'll toss a coin, but it's head you, heads you win, tails you win. And it's not money on offer. God doesn't promise you riches or success in this life. As Paul shows, he doesn't even promise you a long life in this world. He offers you Jesus. And even death can't rob you of him. It's no wonder he's filled with joy, is it? Indeed, joy runs all the way through this book. And Paul often talks about joy and rejoicing in his letters, but it comes up so, uh, so often in the book of Philippians. And that's because the mindset Paul is calling for in this book is not the enemy of joy. It is the soil in which it flourishes. To approve what is excellent is the path of joy. The Australian preacher, Philip Jensen, was teaching Philippians from this pulpit a few years ago, and he made one of the most insightful comments I've ever heard. You ready for this? He said, joy is spelt J-O-Y. Isn't that insightful? I mean, not just that. Obviously, you need a little bit more context. And he was talking about the way that um, the decisions that Paul makes produce joy, and that it comes from putting Jesus first. Others second, and yourself last. J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. To live is Christ, says Paul. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Jesus he puts first. And because of that, he thinks about others before himself. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, but to remain is more necessary on your account. And Jesus first, others second, and then, and only then, he puts in himself, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. That is the path of joy. It's not the promise of endless happiness. It's not that Christians can't be depressed. We still live in a fallen world. But when we have Paul's motto, to live is Christ and to die is gain, it transforms our experience. It is hope in the midst of suffering. It is a constant good to hold on to, even in the midst of, even in the midst of despair. It is a cause to praise God, even if it's through tears. Of course, for lots of us, the reason that we don't experience Paul's joy is because we try to spell it backwards. Yourself, I always look after number one. And then others, it's, it's good to love other people. And Jesus, if he emerges at all, is somewhere there in third place. And maybe it's a, it's a, it's a close third place. Maybe sometimes he makes it up into second. But so long as it doesn't ruin my plans. It is, as we saw from Don Carson last week, the decision to choose three quids worth of the gospel 
Not too much of the gospel, thanks very much. Not too much, just enough to make me happy. Not so much that I get addicted. Not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. Just enough to give me the label Christian. Just enough, but not enough to make me weird. Not enough that I'll end up following Paul's motto, which is, of course, not enough for me to experience Paul's joy. Three quid's worth of the gospel. It's the little, simply-range decision. It is a sorrowful decision. Won't we mourn those who make that choice? We need to stop thinking that the best life is lived with Jesus in anything other than first place. Jordan Peterson has 12 rules for life, or 24 rules for life, or 42 rules for life. Interestingly, one of the chapters in his original set is called Pursue What is Meaningful. And that chapter has got lots of Bible in it, but he stops short of embracing Jesus. And so he misses the mark. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. There is no greater rule for life. No one will get to the end of their life and wish they had made fewer decisions for Jesus. Will you get to the end of your life and wish that you had made more? Yes, it will look weird to the world. It doesn't look like Hotel Chocolat. Follow Christ and you will make weird decisions. They're decisions that only make sense if you're focused on Jesus. But if you're focused on Jesus, they are the only decisions that make sense. One rule for life, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Win-win. No regrets. Let me lead us in a prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your great work in the Apostle Paul and for his ability to make these decisions. Thank you that the work you began in him, you brought to completion. And we pray that you would cause our love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we would think like this so that we would be able to say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Pray that you would use this book of Philippians to work that in us and so that each one of us might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through him to your praise and glory. Amen.